Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Chris Coyer needs no introduction and it was a pleasure to have him on the show. Being a front-end engineer as well, we were able to talk about CSS, front-end technologies, product development and running a profitable business, virtual assistants and of course getting into the nitty-gritty of code pen and CSS tricks. I felt like we could have talked for hours on this one but alas it had to come to an end. So here is Chris Coyer. Hello, I am Chris Coyer, co-founder of uh, a social development environment we call CodePen, and I've been writing about web design and development for a long time. Uh, CSS Tricks is a kind of a blog and video site, kind of a community site around all that stuff that I've been running for a long time. And I have a podcast myself as well called Shop Talk Show. Nice. We'll get into all that. But as you uh, as you rightfully said, you've been in it for a long time. So our job here is to try and talk about some stuff that you haven't spoken about or that you haven't delved into in the world of development. So uh, <laughs> let's try. <laughs> Are you ready, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm so ready. It sounds like you all come from a like a do agency work more than I have. So that's a that's a always a fun one to to think about. Is I don't. I never really lived in that world. So Chris and I, yeah, we, we we've done agency work and we we run our own companies, all the rest of it. So let's just see how that um, goes. But but my first question, I wanted to go right for the jugular with this one. How is CSS still relevant today? Well, I mean, I can I can take it at the surface level and that it's relevant because there are no alternatives. It's the only way to style things on websites. So there's not even anything gunning for it, really. I mean there is things gunning for the web as a whole you know there's a there's a kind of an eternal battle between like you know will will native platforms win because certainly you can make apps for mobile devices that don't use any web technology they use you know the proprietary tech behind those platforms and that's an interesting battle but if you're talking about building something for the web that's the literally the only language for styling things is CSS. You kind of have no choice to learn it. There's abstractions, there's tooling on top of it, but it all ends up in the browser as CSS. And that's kind of cool. I lucked out in a way having a website that's has that in the name, although you know, the site CSS Tricks is in a sense terribly named. It's not <laughs> I like to write about CSS tricks. Don't get me wrong. Like a, a, a good old CSS trick will, uh, you know, get me going for sure. But <laughs> it's been long since that's all we do. It's really just a site that just talks about building websites and the, the, the world around building websites, mostly from a front end perspective. Although these days that's, what does that even mean? You know, the lines are getting pretty blurry in the, the world of what's front end and back end and what anymore. But yeah, CSS, the language is is entirely relevant, you know. I totally agree. I guess I've met a lot of a lot of engineers and developers who have had a weird, strange relationship with CSS. A lot of them don't like it. People they, they don't like CSS and which is kind of weird. And we'll probably get into this, this idea of front end being a very UI designery type of thing, you know, way back when in the in the 90s into more of an engineering role now. But I find a lot of engineers that they're, they're resorting to using things like 
Tailwind and Bootstrap and, and all these libraries that basically inevitably help them avoid writing CSS. And I'm, I'm just super curious, one, if you've experienced that yourself and where this has come from, really, this idea that I, I, just, I just know tons of people who just do not like writing CSS. I mean, certainly if you are on Twitter, you've heard those battles. I mean, it's probably the top front-end development battle is, you know, or the, the thing that bubbles up to the surface so often is exactly how you put it. You know, people just one little tweet about somebody not liking CSS and it can turn into a to a whole ball of worms with with them getting dunked on for even having that opinion, which feels a bit silly. It feels like there's a lot of uh for lack of a better word, sensitivity on both sides of of that, that it's it feels a little bit silly to me after you've you've seen that fight play out 15 times, you know. <laughs> but there's the squabbling and then there's like reality. Like there is a lot of um like as you say, there's people that, for example, reach for tailwind. And I think you put it as a way to uh, avoid learning CSS. I think there's a some truth to that, but that you you're useless in Tailwind if you if you don't understand CSS at all. But what I think it offers is some guardrails that CSS doesn't. You know, I think I heard somebody describe Tailwind specifically as um and in the like the utility library approach as like bumper bowling for for styling <laughs> websites because you get you know there's there's predetermined sizes there's predetermined colors there's predetermined layouts you pick from these whereas css has no guardrails at all you do whatever you want right so i think the appeal of it is that like if i use these predetermined things how that page is going to end up is maybe pretty nice you know it's going to feel cohesive with the rest of the thing that i'm building and that's appealing it's it's almost more about those guardrails than it is about the syntax and usage of the tool that you've picked. Why is it you think that um, nothing's challenged CSS? Because I mean, this might be a silly question because like you could ask the same question about HTML. Why is nothing challenged HTML? But again, it all compiles down to that. But why has there not been any sort of challenges in the last sort of what, 30 years almost? Yeah, long time, isn't it? Wouldn't it be cool to see? But yeah, not even a not even a whiff of one, I don't think. And in fact, the rare glimpses of a whiff I've seen of them, they're almost like comedically bad. And I, I think part <laughs> of it is because it's a super, super, super hard problem that there's no incentive to do much about. Like what we have, especially lately, has gotten so good that's like, it's not worth throwing away, especially once you kind of, kind of dig into the details. Like, what could you do better here? I think it would be hard to do better than CSS is already doing. Like, it's a pretty good language. It's pretty powerful. You can do a lot of stuff with it. What's the incentive for doing it? It's almost like a, the, the browser itself. It's like, why aren't there browser startups, you know? There's forks of existing browsers. I mean, you know, you can look at stuff like Brave or whatever that's like a basically a fork of Chrome that adds additional features on top of it. I think that kind of thing is makes has potential to be a business. But to write a browser from ground up, why? There's no, it's like, what's the business model? They're already all open source. So your model could be closed source, but then like you're not benefiting then from this big open source model and browsers are so complicated and the security is so paramount to the it's it's just like there's no incentive to do it so when there's no incentive it doesn't get done 
why do you think people struggle with CSS then? Because we, we've spoken, you know, from my experience, I've, I've mentioned that a lot of people resort to these frameworks and things like that because they don't want to write CSS and maybe they don't understand enough about it because you can write center align class or whatever that is. And it's, all of a sudden it's got flex and justify and align content and all the rest of it. Why do you think people do struggle with CSS? Is it, is it a paradigm of the way it's scoped or anything like that? That's probably part of it. When you when you think I, I like that way of framing it that it's the scope there is no real scoping in CSS not yet not really if you type p and open curly brace close curly brace it's gonna select every single p on your entire website no you know no exceptions really so it's like that global nature of it. every single selector is global the only scoping is scoping you bring to it by writing selectors that match less of of what you want but i think that can be perhaps the, you know paradigm was your word there that that's different than a lot of other languages where where scope is very much like part of the game like you, you have function scope and JavaScript and all those variables, they just stay in there, you know, and CSS doesn't have that. There's also this really visual nature to it. And it's almost like, are you, I'm, I'm a little afraid of painting. I can't just go up to a canvas with literal oil paints and, and make something happen. And I just don't have any aptitude for that at the moment. And I, and I think maybe that's similar to css i happen to know those tools well enough so that I, that I, I i can approach a blank canvas in css but only through lots of practice does it feel good using those tools to kind of paint a screen there's there's some aspect of that you know and it's different levels too i think that absolutely from scratch css work is a little different you know can you that like that type of css work that's like here's a comp in figma check it out you have nothing, you have no HTML, you have no CSS, nothing. Make that happen. That can be like extra daunting that that's like, I don't even know where to start. How do I even think about this? Like that is different than there's, now it's done. It's been in production for two years. What I really need to do is make like a variation of this card component. I think that's easier that there's already this existing structure and tooling set up and I can kind of copy and paste a few things or change some existing settings that that type of CSS work is like less hard, you know, uh, but you're right. It is interesting to dig into that. Like what is, what makes people feel so viscerally against it? You know, there's like a, there's like a joke, a Twitter joke, Thomas Fuchs, I think did it first where what, CSS walks into a bar and kicks over a bar and the bar stool falls over in another bar or something. Oh, I just slaughtered the joke. But the idea was that you, <laughs> you write, you know, you write one line of CSS and it has these consequences that you just had, you just were like, why did that happen? Oh my God, it feels so illogical. You know, that era will, will simmer down over a while. It used to be, you know, it would be more understandable to hate on CSS because of how many like hacks there are for it. And hacks were the right word. You're doing, you're doing things that you just had to do, even though that's not why it was designed. You're using whatever clear fix hacks and stuff just so that some columns didn't collapse on each other. Whoa, that's just, you just had to know that. You, you had to just be taught this really weird thing. It's like, it's like oh, you got to go over to the jukebox and hit it with your hand in order to, to make it work. Is that kind of crap. But CSS has evolved a long time since then. I mean, most 
developers entering the field now aren't floating columns next to each other to make it. They're using Flexbox and Grid and stuff because that stuff is universally supported these days. And it's much more learnable. It's like it has evolved this system of like you can teach this and it makes sense as a sensical system and it gets better all the time. I mean, the, r much newer than things like Flexbox and Grid are logical properties that these these ideas that this is the top of the box. So it's called block start and this is the bottom of the box and it's called block end. And those two, those things don't change when, for example, the writing mode changes left doesn't turn to right, it's still just the end of the block. Like these type of logical things that have happened that if you didn't come up with them might feel a little weird, and they do to me still. But if you learned that from scratch as part of the system, you'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. I, when you said uh, CSS tricks, I was like, it kind of made, like hacks is the first word that kind of came up. I'm probably nicking Chris's question is, but was that the kind of impetus behind CSS tricks is this idea that you wanted to showcase these hacks or, or help people because it was a lot of, it was a lot of hacking around, you know, there's all right. I don't think I was afraid of hacks. Like that would have been a good post is to be like, this is how you do. But I, I think I was more interested in, and still am the outcome. This is what you need to get done. And this is what you got to do to do it. I'm not on purpose focusing on the hack. And in fact, I'd prefer to show somebody how to do something with no hacks just like this is this is how you do the thing because there is plenty in css just doing things the right way that's still very weird that you just need to know i mean just just yesterday i was working on a blog post about custom properties which are relatively new in css it's like a variable you set these variables with two dashes in css and then they can become whatever value you want to give it and it's interesting. There's lots of things you can do with it, but they're, I think it's still shaking out how best to leverage them in systems. You know, I think right when they came out, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll put all my colors in this and then and that. And that means I don't have to use SAS for my, because that's all we are using SAS for is colors or something like that. That's like level one stuff, right? And then it gets more complicated. Like, what can I do with media queries with these things? And how can I use them to like leverage variations of my components and best practices of authoring? And then, uh, and then there's, there's quirks, you know? So what I was working on yesterday is I noticed, you know, people running into this problem with custom properties of how and where they're declared. And it was, and it was just, it doesn't, it kind of breaks your brain how, because variables can have dependencies of other variables and it all gets complicated rather quickly. And so I just wrote that up. That's like a prototypical post for CSS tricks and the blog post, it's not even out yet. It might not be out for weeks, but was, I called it like the big gotcha with CSS custom properties. That's a perfect post for my site. Cause it's like, it's not really a trick. It's just something you need to know about CSS. You know? Yeah. So with, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned it's not, it's not just CSS tricks, you know, you, you do tons and tons of stuff on the web, basically. How are you, how are you staying on top of things when it comes to, because obviously a lot of people would look to CSS tricks to be the first one to, uh, to really cover some of the latest stuff that's going on. How do you stay on top of things? Is it through Twitter? Is it just experimentation or? Yeah, a little bit. You know, and just the, the fact that I have the site puts me at kind of a conversational center around this stuff sometimes. Sometimes get emails from people asking questions about stuff and guest authors, you know, trying to write about 
new topics and stuff. But I, you know, it's a hobby of mine anyway. So I stay on top of it because I find it entertaining to do so. I subscribe to a ton of RSS feeds from other people's sites. And I wouldn't say that we're on the cutting edge. We're not like breaking news for web dev stuff. If anything, we're 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 quite slow behind. I have, it takes me a minute to wrap my head around what the thing is and whether it's worth covering or not and finding an author to write about it and all that. We're not certainly not cutting edge and nor do I care to be you know it's not even the the most important aspect of my career really and in a way it's just a big grown-up side project <laughs> I was going to ask, ask how uh, how important it was because you, your site comes you know at the top of the list when you're just trying to work your way through a web project and I think generally that it could be on any topic. It's not necessarily going to be on the cutting edge, is it? It's usually going to be some technology that's three or four or five years old, really. Yeah, we're really locked out that way, you know. But <laughs> a lot of this content, through not through not necessarily planning it to do that way, ends up kind of evergreen because the web is kind of evergreen. You know, it doesn't change all that much that some five-year-old article about how to do something on the web. That's still how you do something on the web. Less so with articles that are heavy on frameworks, you know. If we had a, I'm sure we have some articles that like use Moo tools or whatever on CSS tricks. Do those are do those have value to developers anymore? Not really. Well, to the people dealing with legacy, I'm sure it does. But <laughs> but you but your site's definitely up there with um, you know Stack Overflow, I suppose, as well in terms of like. In fact, actually, there's links across the web between CSS tricks and Stack Overflow and uh, and CodePen, actually. Um, you know, so I think you're kind of in there in sort of the, the developer resources. You're kind of right, in, right front and center. Yeah, I mean, that's nice. Stack Overflow has, you know, this is just a, a side, but, the, you know, sometimes people answer a question on Stack Overflow and the, the best answer is like, can you show me? Can you like prove it? You know, like, how do you format this date in a certain way or something? The answer that you need is code, but it's more satisfying to see the code actually working than it is to see code that you have to copy and paste and then hope it works or something or test it yourself to see if it works. So that I think that's what you mean is that all, so there's answers in Stack Overflow that are just a link to a pen. And then they banned it is the aside. They said, you can't do that anymore. Have they really? Yeah. Well, A, they built their own little thing. So if you need to execute some JavaScript in there, which is fine, like it's not a full featured app like CodePen is. It's just a little thing to like execute your code. You can do it in that, or you can just use your words with the answer and link to CodePen. It just can't be just a CodePen link. That's like, that's what's banned. <laughs> um, why is that? Is it, is it a security thing or just they just want to use their own mechanism? I think that the content is what matters to them and rightfully so. Like they need their, what's valuable to them is this massive database of actual answers. And if the answer is, there is no answer when it's just a link to a third party website. Like what if CodePen goes offline? What if it's a sold to somebody that they consider a, you know, uncouth or a gnarly competitor or something like Now the answer is gone from them. And the answer is, yeah, I, th I just think they want they want to own that answer, which is fine. Like I'm not, I, I didn't bring this up because I'm salty about it. I think it's 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 interesting and it's valuable for us. I mean, the fact that anybody would use our app to answer a question on some other website is just cool, and I'm down with that. You know, was that the plan when you started it out? I mean, or has it evolved into that? I mean, kinda, yeah, because it 
that's what makes the elevator pitch for CodePen kind of hard is that that's, that's a thing that you can do. CodePen can be a little place to write some code to answer somebody's question. But that's like not good enough, you know? Like that's not really a particularly ambitious startup investing worthy plan, I don't think. So, but that's not the only reason. If you build an online editor, that's one way that you can use it. Another way you can use it is, let's say you're an artist, you're a code artist and you just want to use it because, you know, you just whatever, prefer the social features of CodePen, for example, because we, when you build something on CodePen, it's a, a little bit like any other social network. People can comment on it and like it, and we track the views on it and clicks and stuff on it. So we can make it part of the grand algorithm of CodePen and make sure that it's surfaced higher in search results and, and things like that. So, so if you're an artist, why wouldn't you use this? Because then you get some of that, whatever, that dopamine available to having your your work be provably seen by others. So that's fun. But is that enough too? Those are two very different things, you know, but other people, coworkers use it to, to pair program together to, to, to suss out a problem because they like the little isolated environment or people use it to literally build little websites and deploy them because we have that as a feature. And so there's all these little things. Like once you have a code editor in the browser, as we do, the, the equation of what people want to do with that is a little wider in scope. And I think that's fun. But what was the plan when you came up with it initially? Like, was it all of those things or did you, you know, was it a small idea that's turned into this, this big thing? Mostly that it was, it was, I already had CSS tricks and like stack overflow. What's satisfying when you're reading something about tech, like how do I do X? The most satisfying answer is to see it be done. How do I do tabs in React or whatever? I want to see an actual example of it. I'm not just going to like trust your code dump, right? The way that I did this from day one for many, many, many years was to author demos locally on my computer. Just an HTML file. I'm just going to make the demo. And then I FTP'd it up to the server that serves CSSTricks.com. And I put them all at slash examples. So it'd be like slash examples slash rounded tabs or something. And then I would link you to that HTML file to see the demo, which was kind of just how you did things back then. And like, here's the demo. So I could, from the blog post, could link to that demo and you could, you could see it for real. Maybe I could even iframe it, like throw a little iframe in the blog post that has the example in it. That way I don't have to like embed the raw HTML in the blog post, which probably isn't going to age well. And there's some, you know, some issues with that type of CSS scoping <laughs> to bring it back to the original conversation. But anyway, what I wanted was ways to put those demos in a less janky experience. Cause it, I also wanted to like put Google analytics on them. Cause I wanted to track how well they're doing. I wanted to put some branding on the demos to say, this is a demo by CSS tricks and maybe even a footer or something. So what I ultimately did was did it with PHP. Each demo was like demo.php so that I could have includes at the top. So my, you know, 2000 demos on the site could all have, you know, if I needed to update the logo, I updated in one place kind of thing. So I was slowly building like my own little demo app, but just terribly, you know, and then there's other apps that came along that predate CodePen, like JS Fiddle and um, JS Bin that are similar to CodePen. They're little online editors for making little things. And I was like, these are freaking great. 
this is the way you should do that because they then you can link over to it and you're you're doing this thing that seems obvious today but wasn't at the time whereas you're looking at the code and the demo at the same time like that was new at one time that concept of let me look at the code and the output together and those apps kind of innovated it and i was like i want in on that so so i had this kind of moment where i was like should i move all my demos to one of those should i pick one just move all the demos over to it. Because not only can I link to that and it's a more satisfying experience for all the readers because they see the demo better, but they also have a feature where you can embed it right in the blog post. And But or maybe they didn't. Or maybe that came later or something. My big idea was it feels like a lot to trust one of these editors that have no discernible business model, for one thing, you know, to put all my stuff because what if i move thousands of demos and do all that labor and they they close or something like fuck you know like that's no good so i was like i'm gonna build my own but like especially at the time i'm a front-end guy mostly i don't think i've ever once hand architected the data model of a mysql database like ever like it's just not my thing i can think about it i could probably participate in a meeting and you know be part of a team that thinks about those things but that's not my expertise really so i rope in some friends to do it like how hard can this be you know at the time ruby on rails was the hot framework and it was known for being able to spin up crap like that really fast you know yeah you need a little crud thing sure crud it up so they helped me spin up that and we do pretty simple processing. We, you know, we put a code editor on one side that, and what we wanted to offer, of course, is some above and beyond just writing HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. SAS is, of course, a very popular CSS preprocessor. It'd be nice to be able to write in SAS, wouldn't it? And see the result of that SAS. So there are some pipelines for code processing behind the scenes but ultimately we smash it all together we plop it in an iframe and we show it to you and i just wanted to build the simplest version of that app so that i could put all my demos on it know that i can trust it because it's mine and then put those on css tricks and we called it code pen from day one and it was we were thinking maybe it's just like an open source thing that you install wherever so it'd be like cssstricks.com slash code pen or something it would be its little local install but other people could install it as well but there was like enough challenges i can't remember exactly why we didn't do that but we ended up or maybe we were planning on it but we put like the canonical one at codepen.io just like hey we'll put you know we'll put a demo installation of it here but then it had a login system and all that you know we started adding features to this thing and it started to feel like this should just we should just have this be the app like that's how web apps work right you know the where it became what it is today even though you know there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of journeys since then was this idea that we make it available. Anybody can sign in and do it. And they are building stuff, but we didn't display what they're building to anybody else. It wasn't exactly social yet. We built our own internal dashboard that was like just a chronological list of every single thing that anybody made. And it became fun for us to just hang out there refreshing that page essentially and seeing what people would do and you're like this is cool you know and at some point we just like made that the home page so instead of it being this admin tool be like why don't you just have 
a list essentially of what people are making be the homepage rather than the editor be the homepage. And you click onto these to see what other people are doing. Then you, you know, once that's the case, it's like, well, we should add a love button so people can click that and then we'll know what popular ones are. And it's like, oh, we should track views because that's an interesting metric too. And hey, we should put a fork button. So if you want your own copy of somebody else's code, then you just click the fork button and then you got one, you know? You just start adding features like that and pretty soon you got a little social network for code. That's so cool. Like I'm fascinated about Copain from a from a product perspective. So do you find that's how a lot of these features are coming around through just hey, we want the, a very organic way or do, are you a large team that has, you know, user reviews, user, you know, and, and trying to figure out what the next feature is or was it a very organic process? Well, it was a very poor process for a long time. <laughs> we even joked that it was, we did Twitter driven development for a while. Somebody would, somebody would just be like, you know, it would be cool this and be like, yeah, that would be cool. And then we just build it. And we didn't, or one of us would build it and we wouldn't even really talk about it with each other. And that it was fun for a while and not a huge problem, but as an app gets older and older and you start basically questioning your life, because you're like, this has been a significant piece of my literal life as a human being, like th these technical debt decisions, because somebody just put in a feature they thought would, was cool. And now I have to support for the rest of my life is th these are like not they're not a joke anymore. They're real things. So you have to like start treating them more seriously. And then you have to go through re-architectures and, you know, endless meetings of what can we do here to simplify this? And is it possible to kill this feature? And what features have actual business value? They're not just little things. And what features are obvious, but what features are really future forward looking that, that changed the game? This code has been around a while and there's, well, I think funny enough, those original apps like JS Bin and JS Fiddle, they're still around. They still do what they do. They're not that different than CodePen really. Although I think we do a lot of things cooler and better. They're not worlds different. And sit it, But along the journey, there's been next gen code editors that can do things that CodePen totally can't do. I don't think we're like the coolest kids on the block anymore as far as all the things that we can support. I like to think we do it fast. We're super reliable. We actually have a business model. We have a dedicated team. We have fast support. We have all kinds of like things going for us. But there are some, some you know, some hot kids on the block doing cool things. So we need to be thinking about like, well, that's not cool. You know, like how can we, <laughs> how can we you know, re, re leapfrog things, you know, we're not interested in just sitting around being, being what we are forever. We have to make decisions about what's, what works for us. What can, how can we take our experience and bring things to the next level, that kind of thing. But yeah, there's been plenty of bad, bad choices along the way that just have, have been painful. At what point did it start maturing then? At what point did you start sort of going, okay, actually we need to we need to be a bit more serious and grown up about this and decide and prioritize those sort of features. Right. Well, you know, certain realities hit you in the face sometimes. So, for example, there was a, you know, this is a number of years ago, but we could look at our revenue because, you know, CodePen has a pro plan as and we we've had other minor business models. We've got a job board. We've um, we run advertising. We sell merch. You know, there's little there's little pieces of the pie that make up the whole uh, but the biggest one is our pro plans thing. And that always felt like the right way to go. Like, I want to just make good software. I want to have a price for the software. People pay the price if they want it. And that's the business model. You know, that's the most kind of attractive business model to me for these things. We run ads partially because 
everything is public on CodePen and most usage of CodePen is free and there's a lot of traffic for it. Like you said, you know, it's, it shows up in search results a lot. So to, to like earn nothing from a free user doesn't feel as right as running a little bit of advertising on the site and capitalizing on the high traffic that we have. So that's nice. Maybe in a perfect world, we wouldn't do that because we'd be doing so well otherwise. But anyway, so we can look at our revenue. You know, of course we can. We're a business, right? We can look at all the numbers. And it's, I don't think anybody would salivate at CodePen's trajectory over the years. I mean, just to be quite frank, I'm proud of what we've done. We have a, a team of 10 now, or nine, I guess, as of today. That's That was, sorry, we didn't fire anybody or anything. That, <laughs> so that's not weird. We actually gained one, and we gained two nine, not 10, which is great. We're hiring, yay. Um, <laughs> but, but years and years ago, the problem I was alluding to is we could look at that, and it, it, generally it ticked upwards. And that's absolutely what it's doing now. We feel great about that. But there's a point where it not only got flat, but because of costs and fluctuation month to month, it kind of looked like things were going down. And when things are going down, things look, that's bleak in a business like ours. You know, that's, those are bad conversations because you can't run your coffers dry at a company, right? And just be like, oh, sorry, we can't make payroll, turning off the servers, bye. Like you're ruining your career after that. Like you're, you've lost trust. You're like That's just extreme mismanagement and misrunning of a company. So you can't do that, right? And nor do we have any desire to do that. Like we've always said that, you know, should we screw up CodePen so badly that it can't operate as a business anymore, we'd still find some way to never kill those URLs. We'd find some kind of static way of hosting them that's cheap or find some sponsor we're not going to like turn code pen off ever, even if we really ruin it. Right. So when you're in that situation of things are going down, then you're like, what does disaster planning look like? How can we cut costs? How can we, how can we write this ship so that we're either going up again or that we've, you know, we've slashed enough from this, that we've done enough disaster planning and acted on enough stuff that we're okay. Our runway is back to infinite, you know, infinite runways where I like to be. We're making more money than we're losing. We're not a startup in that way. I'm not the, I'm not like hiring 15 people just to, you know, just to burn through it super fast and either fail or we don't. It's just not my style. <laughs> So anyway, that's that's when things got real. That's when things are like, so when we're sitting around doing disaster planning, that's a sobering moment. And that's when you you need to turn things around or or not, you know, and that's been it's I don't think we're unique in that. A lot of companies have faced that and we've gotten through it a couple of times. <laughs> and our latest round has just been really positive. It's been a lot of we're really tech focused. So maybe to our detriment, sometimes we don't, we don't like solve problems with like, maybe if we did better marketing, you know, that's like almost never what we do. We do like, let's change the product, you know, and in a way I'd feel okay about that just because of how high our traffic is anyway. Like we have a crap load of people sign up for CodePen every day. It's all over the place. We have these embeds. Like I talked about, that's why we built CodePen is you put these embeds on CSS tricks, but lot, you know, Google uses it. The React docs use it. The Vue docs use it. Smashing Magazine uses it. The MDN has it in places. It's like people see CodePen. We don't have a lack of awareness of what CodePen is. We have a lack of people that sign up for CodePen and then never choose to go pro. 
So to me, it's a product problem. And to us, it's like, let's fix the product. Let's make sure that that technical debt is at a minimum. Let's have a vision of where we want to take this thing and we'll get there fixing it along the way. And that's where we're at now. So I feel just like this compared to three, four years ago, I'm like of a happy band. When it gets used on, you know, React Docs or Vue or uh, Ant Design, I've looked at it recently as well. Use um, use Copen. Do, do they pay for that functionality as well, or is that part of the, is that part of the freebie? Pretty much, isn't that sad? You know, <laughs> the problem is, you know, we face certain competitions. Like they might use us because it's free, and if. If it wasn't, there's so many CodePen competitors that are that they would just use one of those. So it's one of those things where it's it's hard to like it did come up. I mean, Google has this new course they launched. What it was a couple months ago now, maybe not quite, but it's called Learn CSS. Now, if you type Learn CSS in the browser, you can go right to that Google course. Super well done. High five to the team that did that. There's over a what was it 200, 300 CodePen embeds in the thing. Guess who's got more money than God? Google. Guess who should have probably paid, you know, like, you know, doesn't it seem like I would think an adult looking at the situation would be like, what did you earn from that code pen? Oh, it's nothing. Are you crazy? But, you know, if if I'm sure if we if we weren't, you know, if we were like, oh, I'm sorry, Google, that's going to be one hundred thousand dollars for you to use our service for that. They'd be like, well, we're going to use the free one then, you know, I don't know. It's it's tricky. I don't I don't know how to to confront that. That's on our mind believe me. But I'd like to make it that they choose us and pay for it because it's so good that it's the only choice to use. Whereas right now, I don't think that's the case. Is there not a way of, it's obviously having an effect on your server, the fact that they're embedding this code. And is there a way of... Yeah, charge them for the bandwidth or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Is it, I mean, that's, that seems like a logical way to go if you're, if you're incurring costs because of the amount of traffic to their website. That's exactly right. That's my favorite take on this is that that there should probably be something in our terms of service or whatever that say like, yes, this is free. Free accounts are fine. And then put some caps on various things. We're not trying to limit how much you make, you know, but we, you know, there's already some limits. There's limits of how much code you can put in one pen because there's just some database constraints that make it like make seem like that's fair play and that but i think there's like a two megabyte limit for any one particular file it's the same kind of limits you know but why not limits on bandwidth we don't have one of those you know you could put all kinds of band i mean people that make fonts and sell them sell them under different thing they, they use it page views as a metric i've seen a a recent one where in their eula thing was how many employees your company has that's how much you pay for the font so it scales up pretty high from that but yeah i mean that would be smart i mean i i just at the moment i look at it as like that's not there's other levers i want to pull first and if they they fail because of course we measure everything like businesses do then it's not like we're out of levers to pull. There's still more. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, you you must get a lot of traffic from the React docs and various things like that anyway to to sort of put a to sweeten the blow a, a little bit when it comes to the effect that it's having that you know and all the rest of it. So it's um, sure, and they're backed by Facebook. Yeah, great, another company that's not exactly poor. You know where <laughs> we get a lot from then though is Free Code Camp, which is a really cool organization that has this kind of open source, free code curriculum thing. They have a couple of moments during that curriculum that point people over to CodePen as part of their journey. 
which is great. And we, and they just, I think the freeness of their thing, they just get a, just a ton of students rolling through that program. And that's great for us. Mm. Speaking of the uh, future, then not just the the money making side, but have you got any, uh, has Copen got any exciting features or, or anything lined up that we can expect in, in the near future? <laughs> Hell yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, we're kind of re-architecting the world under the hood and it's going to take us a while to do it. But for the first time, we have like a really, what I think is a really cool, strong vision of what next gen Codepen is like. And it's just going to do more, be more everything and, and be a bit more pro focused too. You know, we're not, we're not in any way neutering what you get today for free on CodePen, but there's going to be a lot more compelling and obvious reasons why you would want to go pro. And that's the biggest, biggest, biggest thing in my mind is that there's just not a lot of like moments when you're using CodePen where you're like, oh, I obviously should pay for this because I need this moment. There's just not enough of those. That was kind of our big failing so far. And we're not failing. We're, you know, like I say that because I run the ship and I want us to be doing better and I want to grow and I have big dreams, but we're a profitable, happy, functioning company. But as when I say failing, I just mean, what could we have done a lot better over time? And I think is to have a lot more of those pro moments, you know, honed in on moments in the, in the software where it's like, oh, I, I can't do this. I have to upgrade to pro to do it. Oh, I'm happy to. That delivers me so much value that I'm happy to pay for it. I think the apps that do that really well, I'm, I have so much envy for, you know. I came from uh, one of the startups I worked at was called Wufu. It was an online form builder. And I was always so kind of proud of how that product came together because the, the moment that you need to pay for it is so obvious. It's like, I need to make a form and the form can have X submissions and it has these X other features. Do you need more submissions than that? Then pay for pro. And it always felt like a very fair cutoff point. And it was so, the value proposition was just clear as day. And then they got bought by SurveyMonkey. So I went there for a while. It was the same way. SurveyMonkey is amazing in that they're, they're in every single vertical, like Everybody in the world needs to make a survey, you know, real estate and education and healthcare and every everything. That's why it's such a, that's why they're freaking publicly traded. You're like, are you kidding me? This survey tool is publicly traded? Indeed it is. But their value proposition was so clear too. And I think we just, we don't have that as much. There's a few on CodePen today that I think are pretty cool. There's the like, I need to upload an image because I'm, you know, I'm coding some front end stuff and I need a background image or something. I have it right here. Where do I put it? I need a URL to it. We make that process really easy, but it's only available for pro people. So that we made the kind of the workflow really smooth. Need to do that upgrade quick. Now you got it. Rock and roll. That works out pretty good for us, um, but it isn't. I'd, I'd I, I want to have a dozen of those moments. I think before having this conversation, I hadn't really even thought about the commercial aspect to the things that you're you're running both CSS tricks and CodePen because they're just what two of those things that you know as I mentioned before are kind of ubiquitous they're available across the web they're probably more akin to the 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 ideas that the web was founded on in a way where it's like here's some thing I created that you can also do too you know it's more it's more about that sharing side of things so it feels a bit more like closer to that ethos of why the web was started really information sharing yeah, yeah. Well, I like that. I like that most of it is free, that it's very sharing based and I'm not trying to lock too much behind walls and stuff. I like open APIs. I like URLs that don't change. I like those early web ethos things, but I'm also like 
a person with a house with a mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> it's very cool. Is there a grand plan for all of the code? Because there's so much stuff there. Like, you know, is that is that that feels like a mine for machine learning? Surely that we can, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tap into. Where do we do we do some machine learning stuff, just a little, because I don't, you know, I don't whatever. It's a little above my pay grade, I feel like. But uh <laughs> for example, these days when you log into CodePen and you're like a user of it because there's kind of a minimum threshold of like activity before this kicks in because otherwise we just know so little about you because we don't uh, this should go without saying I, I have no interest in like gathering data and selling it about you like that's not only gross but like i would wouldn't be able to sleep at I'd like also nobody comes knocking for that i feel like you have to be kind of black hat to begin with to even begin to engage with that crap but we do gather some data in that metrics for example you're logged in and you're engaging with codepen you're clicking on stuff you're harding stuff you're leaving comments you're part of the community that stuff goes into one of those crazy ml boxes and the end result of it all it is it gets used for one thing and it's to show when you go to the trending tab which is you'll see if you're logged into codepen it attempts to show you stuff that's entirely personalized to you, that the guess is that you're going to like it based on things that you do and like on CodePen. So I could see there's probably people that draw the line even before that, that they're like, I don't like, I don't, I don't want a box deciding what I like. And I mean, that's fair, but sorry, that's what we do, you know? No, I've had exactly that experience just today, as a matter of fact, because I'm starting up a home automation business and found out that basically we're, we're putting these home automation things in like Airbnb type places. Uh, and we, we installed one last week and a guest moved in and ripped them all out because <laughs> they thought they were being monitors. Jesus. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so what is the answer to that better communication or better hiding? I don't know. I think it's probably better communication because actually we're not listening to them or spying on them. Like it's just so they can turn the lights on and off and the heating and we know if they're, if they go over a certain volume, but yeah, it is that, I mean, I don't want to, to make this about me because I can easily do that, but I think, <laughs> but I think in terms of um, that, that people feel like they're being intruded upon or spied upon, you know, I can, I, I can totally get that. Oh yeah. I've had, you know, I've had a cleaner come by the house or had people watch the house and came back and there's like rags over the, the Google home devices <laughs> we have, you know, just cause they're like, whatever, I'm watching your house. You don't get to watch me, you know? And I didn't even think about it cause I'm just a jerk like that, I guess, you know, but, but it does, it absolutely makes people uncomfortable and they see a little camera lens just pointing in the kitchen while they're making a sandwich, you know? Yeah, it is a bit of a weird thing, though, isn't it? Because I mean, I suppose you know, years and years ago, you'd you'd worry that maybe your phone had been bugged for whatever reason. And now we've invited the bugs into our house and we place them quite proudly on our desks. Yes, <laughs> where the feature of it is, we're listening. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know? At least they're open about it. At least they're honest. <laughs> right, right. I just I don't know how I feel about it. I put them in my house. I ask them to set timers. I ask what the weather is for my day-to-day -day life i like it i don't and, and i've experienced zero downside to it from aside from the occasional like when they pipe up when you're watching tv trying to like answer a question from csi miami or whatever but that's about the the, the biggest downside i've ever had not that i blame people for being a little concerned about having big brother listening to them like if that's how you roll no shade i get it it's not like these companies are particularly well renowned for their honesty <laughs> yeah indeed 
Um, I'm reading uh, iRobot at the moment, and there's uh, there's a paragraph right at the beginning that's uh, it, it's joking around or saying something around what will we use these robots for, and they actually say asking what the weather is and saying timers in that book or something to that effect. And it's just so funny how we've just carried that book. I, I, I forget when this book was written or whatever, but it's, uh, I do exactly the same thing. Siri is just my timer, unfortunately. <laughs> the, the number one one I use is, and I can't do, it's not just listening on my phone. I have the, I have an iPhone, so I have to hold the button down or whatever. But I go, remind me when I get home to go get the mail or whatever. And then it does the geofencing thing too, where it knows when you arrive home and it gives you the message then. Oh God, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, just take, just take some nefarious people to uh, twist that into something. Cause Apple have released this thing. Now they're going to be looking at your images to cross-reference them with a, with a CSAM or something like that. So now that's the that's the next thing that's that's caught ruffling a few feathers because that in a, in essence means they're scanning all your photos just to just to check. I tried to read up on this as best as I can, but and it seemed like it seemed like fine to me. Which I I and then and then I caught some not criticism from other people, but people are like, you shouldn't think this is fine. Like you can you can you can learn about this and come down on the side that it's worth doing. But to just blanketly say this is absolutely perfectly fine is like an un under nuanced opinion about this, you know, but it looked like they, you know, they aren't looking at the actual photos. They're just hashes of the photos and they appear some threshold and something, something it's like, and it's like, of course, at the very high surface level, if you have these kind of pictures on the phone, I think we all know what we're talking about here very illegal, very immoral, very uncool. I kind of want those people caught. So yeah, that's, that's difficulty, but it, it's just, where does it stop? Is it now another, just, this might seem okay. This might seem fair, which you're absolutely right. And I don't think anyone's going to argue with that because it's, it's absolutely fair. Yeah. And then what's the next step? Yeah. Cause everybody's already worried. You, you know, you have a conversation about, you wake up and you're like, oh, I don't, maybe I need a new mattress. And the very next ad you see is like, Casper, mattresses. <laughs> you love mattresses, you know? And it feels a little uncanny. And it's like, if you're looking at my photos, I think the chances of that getting even more uncanny are really high. And they're getting really close as well, aren't they? Like, I mean, I was having a conversation with, with, uh, with my wife about a friend I had who used to live on a canal boat. I opened up Facebook and the next advert was like, here's a canal boat for sale on eBay. I was like, that's literally the only time I've mentioned that. <laughs> like, how is that doing that? That's, and so now I don't have Facebook anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, the, you know, I feel like the, the, the prescient question, I was like, where's your brain just primed to be watching for that coincidence because it was already in your brain? You know, and you would have saw that ad before and you would have just scrolled right past it and not thought about it. But because you were talking about canal boats, you, you know. That's very true. That's very true. I've got a question on, on the, uh, the, the sort of home assistant side of things. These things don't have interfaces. How does, how does that sort of feel for you as a front-end developer? Yeah, interesting, right? I mean, I, I certainly know front-end developers who have caught the bug for other nerdery, I'm sure y'all have, you know, you're into home nerdery. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, like, oh, I got, I got really into making, um, I didn't, I'm just saying, I know somebody got into making, what is Amazon's called? They're, they have little special apps for their, 
what is Amazon? Alexa, Alexa apps or whatever. You can code them in like Node, you know? So like if you know some JavaScript, they kind of open the door for making a, are they skills? Is that what they Yeah, they're skills, aren't they? I was trying to think of what they were myself, yeah. Because you can run them on uh, AWS. They just sit on Lambdas, don't they, I think? Yeah, which how cool is that? And front-end development is is like Lambdas are... <laughs> taken over yo yeah we run everything on lambdas they're great totally changed the game and then the fact that you can then leverage that skill for this other thing hey why not give it a shot just like people get into mechanical keyboards people get into raspberry pies people get into super mario builder you know all of us nerds have have a whole spectrum of things we choose to to geek out on and that's kind of cool probably will keep us employable <laughs> Have you heard my mechanical keyboard clicking whilst we've been talking? Have you? Yeah. What do you got? <laughs> I've got this uh, this uh, Durgod thing. Oh yeah, that's great. Very, I like yeah. it a lot. Actually, like classy keycaps. What'd you go with the the cherry reds? <laughs> uh, I think they are cherry red. Yeah. I think uh, it was <laughs> a, it was a difficult. I nearly bought the thing <laughs> off Amazon that was like here is a here is a little sample. Oh, I got one pad of, those. of all of your different. Have you got one? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. I got that because I'm not into this. I'm in. I'm. I'm. I'm trying to observe other people. So every time I try to dip my toe, it's too deep. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> it's a lot. You can't just buy. You can't be like, oh, I, I, I like the, whatever. They're not cherry reds, but they make one that are silent because I would just prefer that. I think. And then I tried the other ones, and I have some choices. But you, there, as far as I can tell, there's no website you can go and just be like, I want these keycaps with these switches and this chassis and this. It's like no. I feel like it's intentionally not available. They're like, no. Here's your soldering iron. <laughs> yeah, they've set they've set a pretty high bar for it. You know, there's a a nerd bar that's been set definitely. Yeah, they don't want it crossed. Yeah, which is fine. So here I am, bumbling away on my old Microsoft ergonomic, and it's fine. I love it. <laughs> oh, is that one of the ones that's split into two? I need that. It's I don't know why. I just I can't go back. I haven't I seen one of them in a long time. Yeah, they're not. It's it's they're physically connected. But I've seen plenty of mechanical keyboards that are are literally split in two, you know? They have like two different chords. Anyway, that is nerdery. Wow. <laughs> I had I had a question I really wanted to talk to you about because it's something I've been thinking about for many, many years. So I, I, I've forgotten where I heard you talking about it. You mentioned it and it wasn't really elaborated on, but I'd love to get your insight. And it's around, it's around this idea of front-end development and these kind of two roles and this is not going to be a new idea absolutely because i think this is like 2018 2019 i heard you speaking about it. it's these two ideas of you know one spectrum of front-end developers really going heavy on this engineering route and another another side of it being you know as we spoke about right at the beginning of the the kind of ui i call them engineers and ui developers and and this kind of distinct separation of the two and how it's really quite a difficult or hard thing to navigate when it comes to hiring. I've absolutely been speaking about this for, for, for a long, long time. And I'm wondering if you had ever got any kind of th like anything's progressed with that, or, or have you got any thoughts that you'd like to elaborate on with that into why it might be there, where it might be going or, or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a, yeah, definitely a big part of my, brains for for a couple of years there because it I, on my show shop talk show we did I, it started kind of with a series where I was like 
we named the series How to Think Like a Front End Developer and then interviewed lots of people and said, you know, like, how do you think about this job? Do you self-identify as this way? And then like kind of, if so, what does that mean to you? And got lots of lots of answers about what it is. And that kind of turned into a talk. And then more and more I got to this, this feeling that there's front end people, which for, the word front end to me still, that feels fairly well-defined. I'm like not that worried about that as a term because it largely just means the browser and that backend developers means like the server. And that's like a okay distinction and you can have specialize in those places. But the browser has just gotten so powerful as a tool that what you are doing there is like too much for one specialty. It's just too much. And that that when kind of modern JavaScript arrived, which is like post ES6, like the big frameworks have fallen upon us, the React and the Vue and the Angular and the Ember and stuff, that those became so big. They're big individually and combined, they're everywhere. That they took over in this way and that they're that JavaScript is not optional, right? Like you have to dig into that framework and that framework is JavaScript based, that that can be your whole life as a front end developer. You can know nothing but that and have everything that you know revolve around that world. And then there's all these people that kind of existed in front end development roles before that happened and had no occasion to learn that stuff. Like they were successfully employed, they were making money, they were making their clients happy. They were kicking out WordPress sites. They were making craft sites, toss some jQuery on top of it. They were, you know, making their little slider plugin. They're just doing great. All the while, this other world was rising and just taking over. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, what happened? I'm looking for a job as a front-end developer and it's absolutely required that I have no React. And it's like, why? What? What's, what happened there? So it just was a weird, weird divide. And the other way that that played out is that you could look at some of these new devs that sometimes very literally only know React. Like that's it. And it's not their fault. It's just they went to boot camp. Boot camp decided that's how you get a job. They taught just that. And that's all they know. That that wasn't necessarily taught comprehensively in the way that developers were taught before, which is like, use a button and the section element is, you know, semantically, semantic, you know, they, they, just, they just had a different way of coming onto the web. Thus the friction, thus the, you know, the old timers waving fists at the new kids being like, you're not doing it right. And the, the new kids being like, ah, who's got a job, me or you? you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I paint, I tried to paint that picture somewhat in that, in an essay called the great divide. Uh, Cause that's what I felt like was going on. And it was kind of my thoughts, but I tried to like mostly quote other people from the podcast series we did on this and what their thinking was and, and, and stuff. So it wasn't just like, this is what I'm saying. This is like what everybody's saying. And it, it seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And what's what I, I'm not sure if regret is the right word, but maybe it is, is that like the other sides are mutually exclusive or don't care about each other or that, you know, you have to kind of pick one or the other. Like if you're a React person, you don't care about accessibility. That sucks. If that's what you took from that, that's like not a picture I wanted to paint. 
that's not okay. Like they can, they can coexist. And in fact, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. In fact, you know, the, one of the fun phrases that came out of this was the interview I did with Brad Frost, who kind of offhandedly called his work the front of the front end. And then he, he then also, you know, by virtue of calling it that, there was the back of the front end, which meant things like the person who deals with the webpack and the deployment processes and stuff, which can, can also kind of end up being a front end developer's concern, but not Brad's concern. But Brad wasn't saying, I don't like that kind of work. I don't think it's important. He's saying, what I want is to sit right next to that person at my job. I want us both to be right there and we can both be front end developers, but you know stuff and I know stuff and we'll Voltron it out and be together. And that's what I think is cool here is that there's too much to know. So let's, you know, let's try to split up and we can continue to grow throughout our career. And I hope that you do. And so I had this kind of imagery of like a, a tree, you know, like a, like, like a, like a literal tree, like a trunk. And then the branches branching out from it that like, we start out with some foundational skills. Like all of us basically need to know what HTML is. Even if you're writing JSX, you're still writing HTML, you know, and then our interests branch out heavily from there that any two people have all kinds of different branches of what they know. You know, some people can be, can go really deep on performance. They're reading those dev tools charts and waterfalls and figuring all that stuff out and just because you don't doesn't make you any less of a front-end developer because chances are you're you know more about image optimization or popular interaction patterns or nuanced accessibility concerns and stuff it's just it's, that's where we're at i think i don't think that's changing yeah, I think um, I sort of within my sort of sphere of influence, I think I came to a similar conclusion, really, it comes down to ultimately, it just comes down to respect. And whilst not completely ignoring it, because that's, you know, not my job, or that's not my role or whatever, it's understanding where those people fit in. And exactly that they these people working alongside each other and respecting each other's role and know where they all kind of fit in together. And for the individuals to recognize that within themselves, to know, just like you said, there is so much to learn that it, it's, I was going to say, it's not your responsibility to learn or don't quite mean it like that. It's just don't feel overwhelmed and know that there is, there are strengths because I know plenty of amazing, again, I use the term that I concluded, which was front end engineers, which they, they work heavily with the logic and the web pack and all the rest of it. You know, they they oftentimes they suck at CSS, which brings us full circle to my original question around this idea, around CSS being this um, to to this side of front end uh, engineers, it's kind of not dying a death, but they they just they just don't really want to touch CSS. Well, find someone who is more interested in that side of things and let them take over the kind of the stylistic side, the interface side, rather than the logic side. So. Is, yeah, I think I think I came to the same conclusion as what I what I was getting at. I think that's really interesting though, because I I was wondering, do you have a an interpretation of how the industry feels about about this? Because going back away, I uh, I was at Amazon. I think I left in twenty twelve somewhere somewhere around then. Web developers was seen as a different job category to a software development engineer at the time. I'm not sure whether it still is, but there was obviously a lot more respect put on 
back-end engineers versus front-end engineers. Do you think that's still the case? Because that front-end is a lot, a lot more complicated now. Right. Maybe that'll smooth out a little bit because of the just amount of responsibility that's 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 put on the front end developers and how productive they can be to the point where like I think there can be like a solo entrepreneur front end developer who builds an entire app database and all all by themselves which was trickier to pull off in the past let's say you know you need you need to build some crud app these days you got it you you know just some very basic data skills and you're off to go and that's that's a that's a big deal that more of that kind of data responsibility has moved over to the front end i think that's a big deal and then that just by virtue of that like is <laughs> this is sad that it had to come to this but then that thus gets more respect and closer equal pay i have no data on this though so i can't speak about it particularly in a way that matters because i think what matters is you know in just actual analysis of what's happening in the industry and things but i do think that really like deeply skilled important back-end people like that's not like unseated yet that's the that's the the big money the most kind of dev clout in organizations that's probably going to hang on for quite a while and, you know, this is probably somewhat of an unpopular opinion in front end development, but I don't have like a huge problem with that because in my career, sometimes those really deep back end people are doing work that is kind of inherently a bigger, they face bigger problems than I face. Like I'll get a ticket and I'll be like, oh, their alignment of that icon on that button is totally wrong and I'll fix it and nobody cares, you know, like it's better for it. There's polish. It's like I important and I like that work and it's interesting to me. And then backend developers will be like, I don't know, like we're losing 15% of our server power and it diminishes over time. And, you know, we found out through detailed log analysis that, you know, whatever these things that are like, they're not just my lack of understanding that makes them sound complicated. They are more complicated. There's big, deep architectural problems that are, that are just a big deal and that are kind of at the heart of what large scale businesses do. And like, I kind of don't mind that if you're solving those problems that you get paid a little bit more than Captain Me Button Aligner does. You know? <laughs> well, before we go, I have a little quick pop quiz that I'd like to ask you. Ooh, juicy. So these are just, these are just some, some things I've thought of and I'd like to know your opinion. Which is best, Angular, Vue, React or something else? <laughs> that's that's hilarious like i have any idea i've never written a angular app so i have no idea i've only dabbled in Vue, but i'm very compelled by the view feature set how positive the view community is how the leadership of Vue has its head screwed on straight and its direction looks good so i'm very compelled by by view, but I've met some, you know, there's, there's nice people in, in, in all these things, but I'll say that I just, I think react is kind of OG on the, you know, they, that's just, it was such a tremendously good idea at the right time and did a lot of the right things. And I like how kind of unprescriptive it is about certain things. And I, I'm a, I'm a fan. I just like react. Cool. So react wins then. Yeah. Reacts the best one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Which is best. Squarespace, Webflow, WordPress, or something else. <laughs> WordPress, for sure. I'm a huge WordPress fan. So, so wild, though. Yeah, Webflow is a totally different category of stuff. And so is, yeah, wow, that's fun. WordPress, best one. 
Yeah, I, I had a whole, I mean, we're, you know, we're coming to end now, but I had a whole thing about WordPress, uh, well, as I mentioned on email, like WordPress Webflow sort of thing and the no-code revolution. I mean, do you have any thoughts around the no-code thing at all? Is that something you're... Uh, it's, it's a little above my understanding. I think, I mean, I get the concept is build stuff and don't have to code it, but I think the way that that manifests is super different in different, you know, sometimes it's like, can I build a a process for my data without coding it. That's very different than can I build a brochure website without coding it? Those are like two different categories of products. But I think Webflow is really cool and compelling. And I mean, it's incredible what they're able to do with that software. I've seen endless cool demos. I've used it uh, a bit, not super deeply, but even played with their database features and stuff. Super cool. But also like they don't shy away from like the like what CSS is they like they try to represent actual CSS in the product like it's called margin it's called grid layout it's called keyframe animation it's like you'd be you'd be helping yourself to know actual CSS to use their tool i don't think you absolutely have to but it's like they're not like avoiding the knowing of code necessarily you know i get it yeah totally totally yeah completely agree Right, I've got one more. Uh, <laughs> um, which is best, less SAS or pure CSS or something else? <laughs> I like SAS with CSS modules. That's the best. That's the best combo for me. Because actually, I was going to ask a question at the at the start of it, like. All of this stuff has got so much more complex on the front end. If you're starting today as a front end developer. Where'd you go? I mean, there's there's Webpack, there's SAS, there's less, there's all these crazy things. Like, where do you go to get started other than picking something like, you know, uh, Create React app? Yeah, exactly. That's why, right? Because it's so easy. You type, you know, or Next.js. It's so beautiful. It's so easy to get started. One little command has some opinions about where you put files, handles the routing for you. Oh, my God. Why would, why would you use anything else? It's amazing. You know? It's my tool of choice. Yeah. And WordPress does a good job at the, on another angle, you know, like I can just install it and I have this real, this website that's just filthy with functionality, you know, I can do anything and the plugins blow it up even more than that. E-commerce, anything you want to do in WordPress, but the barrier to then get started developing for WordPress is a little higher, I would think, because it's, you know, it's a little harder to spin up locally and it's kind of what's, what's my deployment process going to be like? I don't know. They don't really help you with that. That's true. They never really have, had they? Right from the very get from the get go, there's never been a particularly easy deployment cycle. You know, different environments for WordPress. It's still largely SFTP based. I think you know, there's definitely not like a good. Even my favorite WordPress hosts don't have like a GitHub repo to deployed WordPress flow. Really, I need that because I feel like that's to me. It feels like table stakes these days as a developer. Like, d yes, I'm working in Git. Like, is there any other way that would be very weird not to work in Git? And then that means, okay, so I need some tool then to do Git to FTP to deploy this thing, because I guess that's what I have to do. Like, that's, I don't relish that, but whatever, let's go. Well, here's another one then. Uh, which is best, GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, or Azure DevOps or something else? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, GitHub is the clear the clear winner there. Although I used GitLab for years and years and years that code pen because of because of their ability to self install it, which I think you can do with GitHub too. But GitLab was 
made it affordable. And GitLab, to their credit, has really nice CI that they built in. You know, they were they were way ahead of GitHub on that, but now GitHub has GitHub Actions. So unfortunately, as much as I am rooting for little team GitLab over there, GitHub is, uh, is the behemoth in the room. Yeah, the actions were nice. I'd, I'd ask one about CI. No, let's do CI. So, uh, which one? <laughs> which is best for CI? Would it be? Uh, oh, I've forgotten them all now. Um, <laughs> Travis and Travis. Yeah, you got Travis. You got actions. You've got um, circle. What's the one I'm thinking? Circle. That's the one. Magnum CI was my favorite. I don't know. Oh, was it? Yeah. Do you remember I, that? The one? only one I really used was was GitLab and Circle, and now we've. We're literally have moved literally everything onto actions. So we at CodePen we are actions, 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 and it's kind of cool. It felt like a lot of trust early on because in a sense it feels a little early still of actions. I don't think it's like as robust as it as it could be. It, it feels to me a little too easy. <laughs> like I feel like there should be more steps to make it work. <laughs> mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. But I, you know, it's built in, and, and if you're using GitHub issues anyway, and you're using VS Code, which is now super tightly integrated, it feels like once they got what well, you got, the GitHub hooks in you, you just stay there. You know, the, the whole tooling workflow all together is just too too nice. So VS Code is VS Code your editor of choice these days as well? Then? Oh God, another pop quiz question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I could I could list all the others, but I'm wondering. Yeah, you know, VS Code seems. What to be are right. the others? The only the only time I've ever been compelled to to move away is when I see somebody use something like WebStorm or one of those like really like PHP fancy ones that do a little bit extra there. But yeah, VS Code seems like they got the stranglehold on things. For the... Not that I blame anybody else. You know, I know holdouts on sublime text and stuff that are like, it's so fast. Why would I, you know? But to me, VS Code's smoking fast these days too. And Well, I've only got one, I've only got one last one, which is, uh, which is best, AWS, Google, or Azure? <laughs> we're all aws at codepen and i think they're they're generally ahead of the game and people play catch up to aws generally so you'd you'd use the other one if you you know they give, they give you a, a good a good coupon for your startup or something yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely well i hope those answers help people because uh you know they, these are difficult decisions and actually i think you know it's it's really useful to to have somebody else's perspective on them it's helped me. I know what I know what I'm doing when we get off this call. <laughs> Great stuff. I think we should wrap it up there. So thank you so much for uh for joining, Chris. It's been it's been fab having you on the show. And- sure thing. Take care, guys. All See right, you later. Cheers. Thanks.